it goes? Or? Ah, there we go. All right, sorry, we had a, we had a sound issue there, and I uh, just want to apologize. And <laughs> things happen, right, when you deal with technology. We, you know, we, sometimes we, we think, you know, we're doing well, and we realize that uh, God humbles us with technology. You know, we, have to, we have an elevated sense of our own importance. We like to tell people that there's, you know, 500 people under us, you know, and we're really high in status, when in reality we're like a, we're, we're a security guard at a cemetery. So there you go. There's my morning joke for you to, to uh, fill in the time. Well, well, brother, what a joy it is to be with you. I, I, hope, um, I hope you had a chance to read through James chapter 4 again this week, reflect on what we talked about last week, and then James continues. Really, this section in James, verses 1 of chapter 4 through all the way to cha- uh, verse 10, is one section, and James is addressing the, the topic of uh, worldliness, and he's addressing the, the root cause of these believers' conflict and quarrels. Well, James has, has exposed these believers, really, in the last section that we dealt with in verses 1 through 3 of James chapter 4. He, he's showing that the root of all conflict comes from their hearts. It comes from our hearts. You see, his indwelling sin that besets us as Christians. For the Hebrew is one thing to understand because James himself was Hebrew. He was an Israelite. And the Hebrews believe, and the Bible teaches this as well, is that the heart is the center of the man, the woman. It's the heart now, and this is different from what the Greeks believe. The heart is the seat of reason. It's the seat of a belief. It's the seat of the will. It's the seat of emotion. So when we talk about the heart in Scripture, it encompasses all three of those aspects. And this is the way that the Bible looks at mankind. And when it addresses the heart, it's addressing your, your beliefs, your emotions, your passions, your desires, and your cognitive abilities, your reason. And so understand that, that man is a dynamic creature that we're made in the image of God and we experience life uniquely as an individual, but those experiences that we face affect each aspect of our hearts. And how we respond to those circumstances is determined by what's in our hearts. And you can see this as James was addressing the tongue in chapter 3. At the very end, he speaks about a fountain sending forth what's in the fountain, right? A fountain doesn't send forth bitter water and pure water. He's addressing the heart, and then he transitions to the heart, and he begins that address of the heart of man by talking about wisdom, your belief system. Is it, is it godly wisdom from above, or is it wisdom from men? Is it worldly wisdom? Because what you believe determines what you do. It determines how you feel in the choices that you make. Now, all of those are the motions, the will, and the the beliefs are all bound up together, and they all influence each other. But then James moves from having the wisdom of God, and that's true wisdom, and letting your life be driven by what you believe about God and His will and His ways... Versus what the world says for you to believe about your nature and what you should achieve and do. 
And then he moves to the, re, uh, the desires, the emotions. And that's what we dealt with last week. And so if your mind is set on the wisdom of this world and your belief system tells you that you should have what you want, that you should get what you want, and that you, should, and you deserve to have what makes you happy, then your desires are going to flow in that direction because our, our, our flesh is enticed by the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. It, the world appeals to us. It, it screams for us to indulge in it. And James has moved from the wisdom, dealing with the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of, of man, which is ultimately demonic wisdom because it opposes God and His will, and he moves to those emotions and desires. And, and when you accept those, that worldly wisdom, the way the world looks at things, then those wisdom or those thoughts, those beliefs will drive your emotions. And when you can't get what you want, and you can't get those things that you desire, as James says, you, you do not have three times in verse 2 of chapter 4. You can't get those things. What happens? Well, you're frustrated that you can't make yourself happy. And you're not satisfied with what God has provided. And you, what do you do? You envy and you quarrel and you fight. And ultimately, you even murder someone else's character. And you slander and you gossip. All those things. You see, we have to battle those desires, those emotions, the aspect of the heart. But we also have to battle it in the mind. And James is going to continue, and we're going to deal with the last part of this verse, or the middle part of this, this section, excuse me, verses 4 through 6 this morning, where he continues addressing how we deal with our desires, the desires and the emotions of the heart. And so the question really that I have for all of you this morning is, do you have a friend? Now you're kind of random. We live in live in Australia, and good day, mate. Everybody's a mate. We have that mateship culture. But I'm talking about a, a, a real friend, someone who's not afraid to address the things in your life that that need addressing. Do you have someone in your life that's willing to to share their lives with you, and you with them? Do you have someone who's close to you? You know, I have a friend that I've known for 26 years. We met when I was a second-year high school student, a sophomore, and we've been friends ever since. We share a bond of experience. We share a bond, most importantly, in the Lord. We can be honest with each other, and I appreciate his friendship. And though we're separated by thousands of miles, and have been at times, when we get back together, it's like nothing has ever happened. The distance doesn't matter. You see, the Greeks themselves, they didn't blur those lines between friendship because we call everybody friend. Oh, he's my friend or he's my mate. But the Greeks had three different words for love. Eros was a romantic love for your spouse or another person. Agape is a, a self-sacrificial love that's based out of the will. While 
phileo. Phileo is brotherly or uh, love or friendship. It shares your experience. It's a, it's a great and kindly affection for one another. A great example of this in Scripture is David and Jonathan. And at Jonathan's death, David says in 2 Samuel 1, 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me, and your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now to those who are impure, everything is impure, and many liberal scholars will say, oh, this is, a, this is evidence of an impure relationship, but no, this is evidence of a godly friendship that was maintained over years and years between these two different individuals from very different backgrounds. One was a, a prince, the son of royalty, and the other one was a, a shepherd boy who was chosen to be king. You see, true friendship with people of different backgrounds and, and is sharing their lives and affections for one another. In fact, Jesus calls his followers friends. And if you'd like to turn with me in John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, verse 12, This is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. So, brethren, when it comes to friendship, there's no greater friend that you could have as Jesus Christ. And James, as he continues his passage through the rest of this chapter, verses 4 through 6, he makes a startling accusation. He says that these believers, instead of cultivating a friendship with Jesus Christ, they have instead become a friend to the world. We're going to look at this today. We're going to look at, James gives a, a twofold description of what friendship of the world looks like. He calls it spiritual adultery, and he says it's displeasing to God. But then he offers also hope, and he says that this is not a, a hopeless condition. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll dig in this morning. Verse 4. Well, let's start at verse 1, actually. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So first of all, James identifies this friendship with the world as spiritual adultery. In verse 4, 
It starts out with a very confrontational word, you adulteresses. He says a great rebuke on his part. He, he's broken off teaching and exposing at this point, and he's calling for repentance. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God speaks of his people in terms of husband and wife. James is talking about spiritual infidelity. He's not addressing adulterous women. He's addressing the church at large. He's addressing us. Because it has become a state of reality that God can no longer tolerate in their lives. We see this in the Old Testament in Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 2. And Paul says, I am jealous for you with a, a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You see, in the Old and New Testament, God's people, when they choose something other than God, it is called Adultery, spiritual infidelity, this worldly mindless that James is confronting and has been confronting in verses 1 through 3, it is no less than idolatry. Paul actually says this himself in Colossians 3, 5. He says that, that greed or, being, or coveting is idolatry. It's wanting something more, someone more than you want or you love Christ. James wants them to see the, the enormity of their sin of worldliness, the enormity of them continually giving in to their pleasures. Charles Spurgeon said, if, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin? The man who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Well, sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? You know, I've had the unpleasant and sad experience of counseling a friend who committed adultery. And as a Christian, he understands the, the weight of what he did and the consequences. He knows that he has broken the covenant that he made with his wife and he gave his affections to another. He knows that this adultery was a, a slow process that began in his heart when he became dissatisfied with God given him. Brethren, that's what happens in our own hearts. Spiritual infidelity idol worship. It begins slowly. And James pulls no punches because he desires repentance. He calls these believers adulteresses in their willful pursuit of their pleasures and they, they've taken their focus and their hearts away from God and they've focused it in on pursuing the things of this world. They've given in to the desires of the flesh and the mind. And when you give your affections and your love to someone other than Jesus Christ, you become a spiritual adulterer. You become an idolater. 
And James continues after he makes this stunning address and he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? He addresses the the significance of this attitude. He says, do you not know? The implication in the Greek is they do know. They've had instruction on what discipleship means. And he's calling on their consciences to confirm that their self-indulgence and love for the world is in fact spiritual adultery. They know better is what he's saying. Do you not know? You could say you could say it as a statement. You know this. This worldliness, this desire for the things of the world, this desire to fulfill your pleasures at all costs shows that you've been dominated by your flesh. That you've been you've been you've bit in and you've believed the wisdom of this world. Now 1 John chapter 2 Verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, what the danger that's become of them, and as it was a slow process for them in their worldliness, is that they tolerated sin. It comes into their life, it comes into your heart, little by little, and you indulge in the flesh. And, and once you've indulged in the flesh, the flesh always wants more. And it wants more, and it wants more, and it wants more. We look at those individuals that have been mastered by alcohol or, or pornography and the like. It, it didn't start out with, the, with being drunken, drunken excuse me, or indulging in the, in the worst kinds of that excess. It started little by little. And the flesh always wants more. Same with, with those that are mastered by drugs and the like. You see, our worldly wisdom that the world says focuses on our pleasure and our happiness, and it says it's okay to indulge in those things. You should be happy is what the world says. And if you aren't happy, something is wrong. If you don't feel good, then something's wrong. But that's why James addresses the desires. The desires that we have, we have to master those desires. They're connected to what we believe. We remind our emotions when we feel a certain way. It doesn't mean it's true. Truth is objective. Emotions are subjective. We take our emotions and we go back to the Word of God and we say, do we feel the way we feel for a right reason? Have we informed our consciences appropriately by the Word of God? Are we acting on what we know? See, those indwelling sins of the flesh, they, they, they want you to fulfill them. They scream. And the more you give in, the more you're mastered by that sin. And James also addresses the will, and we'll deal with the will next week as we deal with verses 7 through 10. And the will, the choices that you make based on what you believe and what you feel. You see, at the turn of the century, many musicians noticed in London that many of the errand boys were whistling as they worked, and they whistled out of tune. 
And they wondered why the errand boys in this part of London were whistling out of tune, and they, they traced it back to the fact that the bells of Westminster Abbey were out of tune. And as the bells rang several times a day, the errand boys were unconsciously massing, matching their whistling to the, to the tune without knowing that it was a wrong tune. Believers, how often do you live your life? Based upon the tune of this world, right? You, you live your life based on worldly wisdom. And as a result, you become a friend to this world because it's incompatible. God's wisdom and worldly wisdom are incompatible. The desires of the flesh and, and the desire to honor Christ at all costs are incompatible. And James says, look, do you not know this? You know these things. You've been taught these things. The world's wisdom and its ways are an affront to God, an affront to His wisdom and His will. But James continues and he says, You know these things, or do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? You see, this is the true nature of idolatry. You see, their pleasure-seeking activity is love for the world, and, and friends show their loyalty and affection for one another. See, these believers had a strong affection for the things of the world. They love Philea. They love the things of the world. When you have a friend, what do you do? You spend time with that friend. You enjoy that friend. They enjoyed the world. They spent time with the world. They believed the world's wisdom. They focused on being happy at all costs. But James actually adds what it, what it is, and he says it's hostility. So often when we decide to indulge in sin, we aren't thinking that, oh, we're being hostile towards God. And that's what the world is. The world is in hostility. 1 John 5 says that the world lies in the power of the evil one. He's the God of this age. When you align yourself with the world, you're aligning yourself with the world system, a fallen, humanistic, satanically empowered system that opposes God and His will. You see the weight of this. James wants them to see that it's not just, I'm going to indulge my flesh and have a good time and feel good and be happy, but I am aligning myself with a satanically driven world system. James has already said in verse 27 of chapter 1 that this world system is impure and that stains us. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, that this world is a world of iniquity or evil. He has contempt for this world and so should you. See, James is adding this would be a shocking statement because we often, when we think about indulging in our fleshly desires, we're not thinking of the, the consequences and the significance of that. Brethren, conformity to the world is easy. You don't have to do anything to be conformed to this world. It's a, it's a giant flowing river that all flows in the same direction. That's why Paul says, be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All you have to do is indulge in sin. Don't fight it. All you have to do is, is not study the Scriptures to seek God 
himself, to seek his will and his ways. You don't have to, to guard your emotions and take your choices and your beliefs and your emotions to the Word of God and, and, and compare those subjective things to the truth. You don't have to do any of that. You just let go. You just live your life. Not discipline yourself for godliness. Not making any attempt to fight the indwelling flesh. That's conformity to the world. And, and you'll see that your, your thoughts and your experiences, they will match those people around you. And you will be little different than anybody else. And you will be a friend to the world. So James is addressing this, this spiritual adultery. And he says that, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the general principle. He's addressing them specifically when he calls them adulterers, but he draws out this general principle, and this applies to, to every believer. Every believer, in the sense that if you're a friend of the world, you are an enemy to God. And he says, if you wish, that's, that's a matter of the will. It's the conscious choices you make to indulge in the flesh, indulge in those pleasures of the mind above God's will. It's God's will for you to be, what, sanctified, 1 Thessalonians. James says you, you make yourself, and he, the idea here is a, is a present tense in the Greek. It's a, it's a continual making yourself, a continual choice to do what you want over and over and over without the thought of what God's will truly is. You've made a choice to continually befriend the world. You've sought after wealth, power, respect, prestige, possessions, pleasures, all these things. And there's an allegiance. James says that you have made yourself an enemy, an enemy of God. Well, wow, because what he's talking about is heart idols or the idols of the heart, the things that you love more than God, the focus of your life. It's anything. I've known singles that put the idea of marriage as it's an idol in their life and they're willing to do anything and everything that they can do to achieve that idol because they believe marriage is the end all. They believe that it will fulfill them and that will, it will please them. And, and they, though even to the point that they're willing to marry an unbeliever, which is forbidden in Scripture. Paul says, marry who you want in 1 Corinthians 7, just as long as they're in the Lord. 2 Corinthians, he speaks about in verse 6, sorry, chapter 6, verse 14, about, about unbelievers and believers. The difference is there's light and darkness. Why would you want to be bound with someone who has a different mindset and will and focus than you? I've seen singles, they, they focus in on that as an idol. And that's just one example. You see, James says there's an exclu exclusivity when it comes to God. We're to be separate from this world, be unstained by the things of this world. We're to be dead to the world. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. James says, They've, the significance is they've made themselves an enemy to God. So not only is friendship with the world spiritual adultery, 
but it's also displeasing. Look down in verse 5. Or do you not think, or excuse me, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us. James says, do you think, do you hold as your subjective opinion that the Scriptures hold no authority over your lives? That's what James is saying. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Or another way to say it is, do you speak, think the Scriptures speak in vain? Some of the translations say that. Right? The, these, these believers, and this is what James is calling them to repent, they, they, they look at the Scripture as having no claim over their conduct. Do they believe that God has a will for them? That God desires devotion in, his, in your discipleship? And you're being a disciple of His. The Scriptures give instructions. And He says, basically, it's almost a repeat in a different phrase about being a, what, a doer of the Word and not a hearer. Right? You deceive yourselves when you hear the Word and you don't live by it. And He says, do you think the Scripture has no authority? It's not there for a reason? Look, I came to Australia and I was introduced to the Uniting Church. Now, we don't have a Uniting Church in the States. We have liberal denominations, Presbyterians, Lutheran, Methodists, and they still exist, though their numbers have greatly diminished because of their unfaithfulness to the Word of God. And I was meeting a group of pastors the other day and I was just discussing how the Uniting Church is something new. I've never heard of it before and we were talking about how it came about and one of the pastors told me a story. He said a particular individual that was a friend of his from one of the Bible societies called a particular uniting church and asked to speak to the pastor. And, and, when, uh, and when she answered, he, she said, well, why are you calling me? He goes, well, what do you mean? I have all these, these Bible resources that would be great for, for churches and home groups and Bible studies. She goes, well, I don't believe the Bible. We don't use the Bible here. And he was kind of stunned and he said, well, well, why do you exist? And she said, oh, social justice. You see, you deny the Bible's authority and you can do whatever you want. Brethren, you may not outwardly deny the Bible's authority like a particular individual I just mentioned, but you deny the Bible's authority when you refuse to submit to it in your daily lives, when you refuse to discipline yourself for godliness. Because like I said before, conforming to the world is easy. Discipline yourself takes work. You see, we have a purpose. And our purpose is to what? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As the Westminster Confession so rightly says. And when we choose to enjoy our flesh and enjoy this world and, and live to the world's purpose we're not following through with God's purpose for us and His will. Because James continues and he says that he jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now, this is one of those hard verses that you'll see in different translations that you'll see many different translations of for the fact that the, the Greek word order is, is difficult. Now, frankly, I just think that I like the way the NASB, or sorry, the ESV and the NIV translate. I believe that they translate it right. The NASB, which I'm using, does an almost perfect job. 
Basically, it should read, he jealously desires the spirit, little s, which he has made to dwell within us. James doesn't mention the Holy Spirit at all in the book of James. So what he's saying here is that God aggressively desires that which he has given us. He aggressively desires our devotion. He wants us to have an undivided spirit. That's what James has mentioned earlier in the book of James in chapter 1. He wants to be solely focused on him. He's jealous. Now, a godly jealousy. He's not jealous like a human jealousy. We think of jealousy as a bad term. God wants what is rightly His. He created you and He deserves your worship and devotion. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We think of jealousy as that sinful attribute. For God, it is always in conjunction with His other attributes. Joshua 24, 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. So God has a, a holy jealousy, a righteous jealousy, a loving jealousy. God rightly desires what is His, and you are His. Brethren, you made that commitment. If you are a Christian, you've made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ and Him alone as His disciple. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told His disciples, He says, If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, God desires the, the Spirit that He's put within us. Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Man was designed for worship. He was designed to respond to God. And God created you. He has rights over you. He's talking about you being wholly devoted to Him and not being devoted to, to any of the heart's idols and the things of this world. See, God longs for that undivided devotion of His people. When, when you believe the testimony of God's Word, you worship Him. When you love and value the things that God loves and values, you worship Him. When you submit your will to God's will, you worship Him. Remember, brethren, God tolerates no rival. If you are born-again believer in Christ, then Christ is to be your first love. Anything, any person, place, or idea that you love or you desire more than Jesus Christ has become an idol of your heart. And you know what? God's going to work to remove those idols. He's going to refuse to allow those things to continue in your life. And if you will not submit to the Word of God and the mirror that is the Word of God, as it shows us our hearts and our true nature, then He will use circumstances as a bit and a bridle to bring you to where He wants you to go. He will take those things away. And how you respond to the removal of that idol shows where your heart is. It shows what you love. It shows your level of maturity. If you can't get what you want, are you responding by quarrels? Are you responding by fights and arguments? Are you whinging about it? 
How are you responding when those idols are confronted in your life or removed? But James just doesn't address these believers and tell them that they're adulteresses and they're displeasing in God, but he gives hope. What a, what a blessed hope in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What an assuring note that, that what James is saying here when he says that God gives a greater grace is that God gives an abundant grace that surpasses anything that we could imagine or need. He gives us a, a generous grace that helps us to resist the flesh and to walk close to Him. Right? We don't deserve it. It's grace, right? It's undeserved favor. What we deserve is wrath. But we can't force God to give it. We can't bargain with Him that, Lord, I need more grace. If only I had more grace, I wouldn't have sinned. It doesn't work that way. Right? He gives a, a mega, the word there in Greek is, we get our word mega, a mega grace. When the world competes for your love and affections, He gives a greater grace that you can overcome the world. You can resist the temptations and the allure of those things, and you can remain faithful. Don't say you can't do it because you have been born again. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit that indwells you to empower you and strengthen you. And here we see from James that, that God gives a greater grace. God doesn't leave us on our, on our own to fight the world, to fight the flesh. Augustine said, God gives what He demands. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, when you're weak, we don't want to be thought of as weak, but when we're, when we're weak, we, we, we're struggling in some area, and we cry out to God, and we say, Lord, I need help, and He gives a greater grace. When we're, we're in, a, in a tough trial in life, and we're struggling emotionally, and we're, we're struggling with thoughts of God's goodness, we cry out. God doesn't necessarily going to remove the trial as he, as he said to Apostle Paul. He said, I'm not going to take that thorn in the flesh away, but I'm going to give you more grace so that you can have no choice but depend on me. You have no choice but to give me the glory. It's God's grace. Brethren, the battle against indwelling sin is hard. It's something that all believers have done and had to battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Why do you think we pray over and over, oh, our Lord, come? We don't have to battle those things anymore. You see, the world allures us and competes for our desires and our, and our minds. But you don't have to fight the battle alone. Ask God for help. He lovingly forgives your sins. He gives you grace. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you'll confess your sins and you'll repent, if you'll ask His help, don't give in to the world's wisdom. Seek to know the Word of God and God's wisdom. Resist the flesh. 
God will give you the grace to remain faithful. But then James adds a caveat, and this is an important caveat, because he adds this general principle. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what's the proud? And why does God resist the proud? The proud, just really quick, I wrote down a few descriptions of a proud person, and they're arrogant, they're haughty, they, they like to think of themselves as above others. They have feelings of superiority. They, they love to think that they know what's best. They're self-righteous. They have a false estimation of their own abilities. It's a, they, they have an attitude of the heart that despises God's word and they hate reproof and correction. They're self-sufficient. They depend on themselves and they have an apathy or resistance towards God and His word. They judge everyone by their own personal standard their own personal preferences, and they look down on anyone who doesn't hold to that standard, even though it's subjective. They won't accept criticism or counsel. That's the proud person. And, and the proud person is the person that God opposes. And this is an interesting word because it says that God literally stands against. The word in the Greek is God dresses in his battle array, and he is opposed to the proud person person. God is an, an, that is an active antagonist of the proud person. Because if you will not be humbled by the Word of God, God will bring circumstances to bring you low and teach you humility. Psalm 18, 27, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalm 138, 6, Though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Listen to this, Proverbs 16, 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's like the little boy came up to his mom and said, Mom, I'm, I'm nine feet tall. I'm like Goliath. And his mom said, well, how do you figure that? He said, oh, well, I created a ruler and I measured myself, and I'm nine feet. You see, that's the proud person. They live by their own standard, and according to their own standard, they're doing really good. Look, there's no other sin that arouses God's anger like pride. It is the sin that demons who are in His presence committed, but they wanted more. It is the sin of man in the garden when they were in God's presence, but they wanted more. It's the sin that sets itself against God. Mankind chooses to elevate themselves over God and His sovereignty. Men and women resist God's grace because God's grace is an affront to pride. And this is the connection that James makes. The prideful person will not submit themselves to ask for God's help against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Rather, no one likes being told they're a sinner dominated by their passions, deceived by the wisdom of the world. But that's what these believers were. We sin because we are proud, and God sees our pride as the sin of despising Himself. But James says, look, He resists the proud, but what does He do? He gives grace to the humble. God continually gives grace. The humble is a person who has a deep understanding of their sinfulness and their, their need for God's grace. 
they rest in His provision in Jesus Christ, and they're ready to receive God's grace. They're, they're praying for the grace to endure trials. They're, they're praying for the grace to resist the flesh. James says here that grace is abundant if you're humble. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. John Flavel, the great Puritan, says that they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. You think about Moses as an example. Moses acts... Verse, Acts chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Stephen says that, that Moses, when he killed that Egyptian, was trying to deliver the Israelites in his own strength and by his own power and position. He was trying to form a rebellion. But God used 40 years in the wilderness to humble him, to help him to see that it wasn't Moses that was going to deliver the Israelites, but God was going to deliver the Israelites. Moses had to learn that God didn't need him to accomplish his purpose and his will. But God chooses to give him the privilege to be used. And even in Numbers 12.3, Moses actually wrote this about himself. Now the man Moses was very humble more than any other man who was on the face of the earth. Moses understood that he couldn't do anything apart from God. And he spent 40 years in the wilderness learning that as a shepherd. See, there's a great heart issue here. The humble person knows they are proud. The humble person knows that they are sinful. And they see it and they despise it every day. The humble person depends on God's grace and, and aggressively pursues a life of humility. The proud person is unaware. They're blinded by their pride. The proud person is convinced that they are actually humble. You see, the proud person won't admit that they're prideful, and the humble person will gladly admit that they struggle with pride. See, humility always blossoms into something more beautiful. It's the root of godly wisdom and the, the spiritual fruit in your life. You, you see yourself in the light of God's truth, His reality, and you respond with real contrition and a real desire to know and serve Him better. Humility is knowing what you really deserve from God and rejoicing in the amazing grace instead. See, it's not hopeless. Brethren, I was watching a, a nature show the other day with my kids, and it was all about these, these little insects. And it was amazing that they, these little insects, different kinds of spiders, and there's beetles, and they can go underwater. Some of them even hibernate underwater. And what they do is they create an atmosphere around them, and they go underwater. And while they have that atmosphere, they can breathe. And the world outside doesn't touch them. That world of water doesn't drown them. And I thought as I was watching this, what a great picture of the believer. We are to be in this world, but not of it. We're to have our atmosphere, have our, be surrounded and minds filled with the wisdom that comes from God and His Word. We're to be, we're to be walked, or sorry, we're to walk by the Holy Spirit's guidance and strengthened to resist the flesh and the world. But yet we're in this world. That's why James says not to be stained by the world in chapter 1, verse 27. 
And that's what I kept thinking about because James has pulled no punches. James isn't scared, as we would say, among my friends. Worldly wisdom combined with the the dominating pleasure of the flesh have have given rise to all sorts of evil in the lives of these believers. Conflicts and battles. And when you believe you deserve something or you deserve happiness, you seek out that and in your pride you want it bad. And when you're prevented from getting those things, you cause disruptions and battles and conflicts. James tells us exactly what this heart is orientation is. It's spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is making yourself an enemy of God. Your will, you choose to indulge in those desires and those flesh, and you know it's opposed to God's will. Do not think that God will sit idly by. He is opposed to those that are proud, and He will remove the idols in your life and show you what you truly love. You will not humble yourself before him, and you will not see yourself in the light of his word, he will use circumstances to humble you and to show you those idols. Hebrews 12, 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. God's grace is abundant. His amazing grace is greater than this world. We can remain faithful, brethren. You can be faithful to God. You can resist the worldly wisdom. You can resist the desires of the flesh, the temptations of Satan. We have the Holy Spirit that strengthens us, that empowers us. We have a renewed heart. We've been born again. James, call for us, call for you all to repent of your love for the world and humble yourself before Almighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Wow, we thank you for your truth. The Word of God is truly sharper than any two-edged sword. It just cuts us to the quick. Help us to see that the things in our life are unacceptable, the idols that we, we love and we cherish. Father, teach us to obey. Give us strength and the grace to resist the temptations of this world, to be wholly devoted to you. Father, we thank you again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.